This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Molecule. Molecule is reimagining the future of clean air, starting with the air purifier. For 10% off your first air purifier, visit molekule.com and enter the promo code FOOL10 at checkout. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. I'm your host, Nick Seipel. All our lives have changed over the last few months as people around the world have adapted to living in quarantine. We're shopping online, having Zoom happy hours, and streaming TV more than ever before, if you can believe that. How many of these changes are permanent and how many are just temporary adaptations to endure this pandemic, though? That'll be our topic for today. Joining me to break it down are my fellow industry focus hosts, Emily Flippin and Dylan Lewis. Welcome to the show, guys. Hey, Nick. (laughs) Yeah, we were just talking before we hopped on. I haven't seen y'all since before all this craziness hit. Both of y'all were on Worldly Adventures uh, away from the office before everything got shut down. So so how have y'all's lives changed since this whole thing began? Emily, you go first. Yeah, I, it's definitely taken a hit. I will say I left a very perfectly normal world. I mean, admittedly, there is this weird virus in China and then left, climbed Mount Kilimanjaro for two weeks or so, got off the mountain. And the first piece of news I had was every flight from Europe, which is where I was connecting back from, had been theoretically canceled. Nobody was getting back into the state. So there was a day or two of panic there, but I did make it back and and things have not been the same since. Yeah. And kind of on the same note, I mean, I haven't been to Full HQ since late February because I left, uh, I think it was February 29th, maybe, that that I left to go to the Grand Canyon for a three-week rafting trip. And uh, I came out of the Grand Canyon and there was no office to return to. We were at, you know, stay-at-home orders and we were um, doing our best. uh, I think we were kind of ahead of the curve a little bit with with most companies in terms of deciding to be at home. But I haven't seen my desk or uh, my running shoes (laughs) in quite some time because they're over there. So uh, certainly an adjustment coming back over here as well. Right. To go from, you know, these adventures all over the country and around <laughs> the world to now, you know, to Emily's point, flights grounded. Things have changed really quickly, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So I asked you all to bring three examples of one thing that we think is going to permanently change, one thing that we think was already going to change that COVID-19 has accelerated, and then one thing that's going to go back to normal. And we're going to break down, discuss all those today. First, let's start off with something we think will permanently change as a result of COVID-19. So something that wasn't going to happen, but because this pandemic has taken place, the world has changed uh, permanently as a result. So Dylan, let you go first on this one. What do you think has changed the world as a result of COVID-19? So I I think something that, that will change as a result of this, this is how I interpreted your question for this one, Nick, um, is that the U.S. might decide to re-emphasize some of the critical manufacturing that is a part of this response. Um, and this is probably my hottest take of, of the takes that I'm going to throw out there. Um, but you know, we we've seen over the last two decades really a lot of offshoring or you know sending work, uh, especially stuff that is rote and be pretty easily done uh, overseas. We've seen a lot of manufacturing stuff wind up going overseas. And I think that what we have seen over the last couple months is that there are probably some things that, as a matter of national security, 
probably need to be here and we need to be able to manage a certain stockpile of things like ventilators, like masks, like all these healthcare pieces of equipment. Um, and, and I could see a strong case for the government deciding that to encourage that it might be worth subsidizing some of those industries and operations. Absolutely. I think this week we've seen discussions uh, from the administration about how we can get semiconductor manufacturing coming to the U.S. A lot of that is, is domiciled in Taiwan, maybe some of it in China as well. And that's an important infrastructure uh, uh, for us as a country. And this is, this is a trend. You know, we've, we've seen some pushing uh, towards maybe bringing more manufacturing home. But when you see the supply chains of a lot of these industries really break uh, as a result of this pandemic, uh, you know, it really ups that emphasis that was already kind of bubbling up. Yeah, and, and I mean, there's some precedent for this too. Like, we tend to think of the U.S. as being a place of, of free markets winning out, and that's not entirely true, you know. And there are certain industries that we've just decided are too critically important to the country um, for our own self-reliance that we are willing to subsidize them. And you know, the the easiest one that you can point to is farming. And for the most part, you know, most Americans have grown up with the government subsidizing farming in one way or the other. And that was largely in response to the Great Depression. And it was part of the New Deal that was put forth. And pretty much ever since then, there has been some government subsidy going to farming industries. Um, and it is not a small amount of money. You know, if you go to 2019, it was over $20 billion. And uh, a big chunk of that is related to uh, trade war issues um, and some farm payments that are up related to trade-related aid. About 10, I think, maybe $14 billion in 2019 was related to that. But my point is, um, there are certain industries that we've decided we're willing to protect and make sure that even if the pure economics of it don't make sense to have here, it still makes sense for it to be on American soil. Um, I would not be shocked if we do something like that. There are a lot of manufacturing jobs that or manufacturing operations that enjoy municipal and state tax subsidies. And so that's kind of where they wind up collecting uh, a lot of the government benefit. But, you know, we could also see something down the road where we decide uh, actual payments make sense as well. Yep, I'd agree with that. Emily, you have any thoughts on supply chain shifting? You're going to move on to, to your pick here. I mean, I, I want to move on to my pick, of course, but I, I think it's I think it's worthwhile noting that Dylan said that that's a hot take. I'm not sure if that is such a I mean, it's it's a great take, but I'm not sure if it's so hot as to say that it's controversial. Um, you know, China has nationalized a lot of industries, telecom, utilities, communications, energy, all of these industries that they've determined it's important to have no internet or very little international reliance for just to maintain their own supply systems. And yeah, so many companies based out of the U.S. have had their supply chains broken because we are heavily reliant upon other countries. Now, that's not to say that's a bad thing, right? I mean, globalization has a lot of great benefits that go with it as well, but it does make um, in extreme circumstances like a global pandemic that much harder for these companies. Um, I think the easy answer for what will permanently change is, is one that everyone is, is already thinking about, which is remote work. I mean, that has already started to happen. Um, we see that I, I see a lot of companies probably moving to a permanent shift in their workforce. But if that were to happen, that's not my hot take. I have my own hot take, Dylan. Um, <laughs> if that were to happen, I think there's a very real possibility that we see a permanent impact on the pet market. People working from home are more likely to have pets, take care of their pets, spend more money on their pets. And this is a shift that I don't think was happening. I mean, people tend to spend money on pets regardless. But I think 
if this uh, pandemic causes companies that were not permanently remote work to become permanently remote work. I mean, raise your hand here if you're getting a dog, if you never have to go into an office again. I know I'm probably on that list. No, I agree with that that completely. I actually the reason I got my dog when I did is because I knew I wouldn't have time to take care of a new puppy. So I got it when I when I was kind of in law school. Uh, it's because I knew I wouldn't have time when I got into the workforce. I don't know if you've seen some of the anecdotes coming out um, around pet ownership trends uh, during the pandemic, but there's been a massive upswing in adoptions of pets. There was one story in Bloomberg. I believe, where uh, the adoption centers, the pet adoption centers in New York City had literally run out of pets available to adopt because there had been so much demand for you know folks looking for a companion, uh, that sort of thing during the, during the pandemic. I, I agree with that completely. I think pets were, there's definitely been a step change increase in, in, in pet interest in the past month or so, just in my internal friend group. And then you see these big macro stories as well. Yeah, it's always a minor concern there because you'll see it during the holidays as well, where animal shelters run out of pets because they're given as gifts or people think that they want them. And then long term, they don't have the ability to take care of them. And it will be concerning if people start to return pets, if they were to return to a normal work-life balance or work-life shift where they're working out of an office permanently. But hopefully people who take on the responsibility of pets either can meet those responsibilities or are maybe part of this group of people that are suddenly home way more often than they were before. Oh yeah, exactly. It's a relationship. It's a commitment. It's like it's like marrying somebody, you know. <laughs> you're gonna, you're with them for life for for richer or for poorer, you know, sickness and in health, all those sorts of things. Um so so for my pick, I just want to say like for, for, from a high level anytime a, a group of people have a shared experience, you're going to be changed forever. And I think all of us worldwide at the exact same time being on quarantine locked inside together, there's going to be a lot of ephemeral changes that we can't identify. I think one change that we for sure uh, can identify, though, is I think people are going to wash their hands a lot more. When everyone around the world, every time they turn on the TV uh, for the past six weeks, two months here, is you need to wash your hands, you need to isolate, don't touch your face, all those sorts of things. I think those behaviors uh, really get pounded in. I I pulled a YouGov poll from January 20th, 2020. So this was right when things were starting to ramp up. And it was asking, how often, if ever, do you wash your hands with soap after going to the restroom at home? 58% of people said always. And, you know, the other, the other uh, whatever it is, 42% of people don't wash their hands all the time. I would imagine if you ran that poll again today, you're looking at 90-plus percent of people washing their hands all the time. And, you know, that, that sounds pretty trite and trivial. If you look at some stats on this, we're going to get sick a lot less as a result. So I think 80% of common infections are spread by hands. If you look at uh, some CDC data, uh, if you increase hand washing of soap and water, you can release uh, reduce death from diarrheal associated diseases by up to 50%, reduces absenteeism in schools from gastrointestinal illnesses uh, in school children. Lots of trickle-down effects you would never think about from just simply everyone in the world at the same time getting pounded into your head how important it is uh, to wash our hands. And so I think that's a change that really is going to be lasting. Because if you're six or 60, you've gotten this message and everyone's going to have that that pounded in. And so I, I think for at least this generation of people, there's going to be an, a really uh, increased uh, focus on, on washing your hands. And I think there's going to be some trickle down effects from a health perspective, even beyond uh, COVID. Nick, are you long soap? <laughs> no, I'm not long soap. But, uh, but you know, the, the, <laughs> I think it'll probably get used more. That's for sure. Um, it's yeah. hard to argue that that's not a good thing. You know, it, like if, if we can look for silver linings in all of this uh, and the COVID episode that we're dealing with, I think that that's, that's something where it's generally better for people to be washing their hands. Yep. 
Yeah, so uh, so so I think that that that's uh, one change. I think we'll see. I think if you look back to to 1919, we saw some significant changes coming out of that pandemic as governments really stood up a lot of healthcare infrastructure. Maybe we'll see some of that now. There's been a lot of pushes uh, in the political realm to, to kind of change how we treat our healthcare industry. I think that's that's possible. Uh, we shall see. Okay. On the back half of the show, we're going to talk about some trends that are accelerating because of COVID-19 and some things we think are just going to go right back to normal uh, when all this comes to an end. But first, Molecule is reimagining the future of clean air, starting with the air purifier. Molecule's technology has been proven effective and verified by science, but most importantly, it's been tested by real people. Molecule has given allergy and asthma sufferers around the country an all-new experience. Breakthrough Pico technology across a range of products provides a solution for the entire home when it comes to air purification. No matter the size of your room, you can choose the option that's best for your space, whether that be the Molecule Air for large rooms or the Molecule Air Mini for smaller rooms. Molecule has introduced a breakthrough science that is finally capable of destroying air pollutants at a molecular level. Pollen may get the blame for seasonal allergens, but it's actually tiny proteins that break off from it that are truly responsible. They're also the ones that can pass right through traditional HEPA air, air excuse me, they're also the ones that can pass right through traditional HEPA air purifiers. HEPA technology was developed in the 1940s, and there hadn't been any innovations since. That is, not until Molecule created Breakthrough Pico technology, a new filtration system that doesn't just collect pollutants on antiquated filters, but destroys them on a molecular level. We've got fools all across the company who use Molecule to improve their quality of life, especially during allergy season. If you'd like to try Molecule for yourself, we've got a special code just for our listeners. For 10% off your first air purifier, visit molekule.com and enter the promo code FOOL10 at checkout. That's molekule.com and promo code FOOL10. Okay, so the next topic we're going to discuss is a trend that was already going to happen that got accelerated by COVID-19. Dylan went first last time, so Emily will let you go first uh, this time around. That's great because I I was a little bit afraid Dylan might steal mine, <laughs> although it's out there, so I don't know why that fear was in my head. Um, I think that we've seen for a couple years now, at a minimum, a trend towards online real estate, right? And online real estate's kind of a, a fluffy term. Essentially, people using more digital tools during the process of buying selling homes. So companies like Redfin, like Zillow, have launched their own iBuying programs, which is really aiming, while they're taking ownership of the home, it's really aiming to simplify the purchase process for consumers who are buying or selling their own homes. And it's been controversial. I myself was a bit of a skeptic. But it's needless to say that the real estate market as it exists today is not very friendly to buyers or sellers. And it's an industry that's rife for disruption. And when you have a global pandemic like we're seeing today, I mean, all in-person tours, for the most part, in the heavily hit areas, have completely stopped. And while uh, Redfin and Zillow have largely stopped any new purchases under their iBuying programs, a lot of a lot of the properties they own and real estate agents have instituted virtual tours, uh, virtual purchasing. I mean, ways to write up mortgage contracts that don't require like fax machines or in-person signatures or notaries. I mean, these are an entire outdated process that I think during this pandemic is being accelerated in its move to the online medium. And I think there's a very realistic world in the relatively near future in which you can buy and sell a home 
completely online. Now, not to say you would necessarily want to, uh, not, especially not if you're a purchaser, if you haven't seen the property, but you should be able to if that is your choice and it should be relatively easy for you to do so. So we're not quite there yet, but I think if anything, this pandemic is showing us that if something can be done digitally, if something can be done without face-to-face person interaction, that extra time, that extra effort, then it should be. Yeah, maybe <laughs> I can hop in on this one because mine mine rhymes with this with this very closely. Um, and I, you know, share all, all, all the other points on, on Redfin, although I, I may be a little bit more skeptical on, on the iBuying side of the business. But I do think uh, you mentioned on the first part of the show, uh, an increased trend towards remote work. And I think that's going to accelerate a trend towards more people moving away from cities, right? If you're stuck in your apartment. So the, the example I, I think of is, say you're someone who works at Google in San Francisco, where housing is very expensive and where people are, are very well paid uh, based on their skills. So say you make $100,000 in San Francisco, and because of the, the cost of living there, you're in a two-bedroom apartment with three other roommates. That, that's a realistic picture of how someone might live there. Now, before this pandemic took place, you worked at Google, you got free meals brought to you every day, you got all these great amenities at your workplace, and so you didn't mind living in, in kind of a crowded crowded conditions. Well, after two months or longer, I mean, Google has canceled a lot of their events even further out than a lot of other companies, you're living in those conditions, and a company offers you the ability to work remotely and move to Columbus, Ohio, and live in a, live in a three-bedroom house, say or Birmingham, Alabama, or Nashville, Tennessee, or any one of these places. Given that, you know, Twitter just announced this week they're going to allow, allow folks to permanently work from home. I think there's going to be a massive move of folks, uh, you know, out of cities, at, le- at least white-collar workers who can, who can work remotely, into more rural areas where, where they can get more space, um, that sort of thing. Uh, and this is, uh, as well, something that we've been waiting for, this increase in home ownership. Uh, among millennials, rates have been trailing where they, where they were in previous generations. We'd seen since 2008 home ownership rates uh, in a downtrend. They've been uh, starting to trend up since 2016. I really think that that accelerates with this increase in work from home, and that plays right into uh, uh, Zillow's advantage. Uh, excuse me, uh, excuse me, Redfin's advantage as a national brokerage with a primarily online focus. All those things that Emily mentioned earlier. And so when you're looking at first-time home buyers moving far away from where they're currently at into 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 these uh, these distant areas that, that plays in Redfin's advantage as a, as a national brokerage, as well as its online first presence. Because if you look at uh, National Association of Realtors data, there's two primary ways that new home buyers or, or that home buyers find a real estate agent. It's either through a referral, someone that they've already done a transaction with before, or it's online. Well, a lot of these folks are first-time home buyers, so they're probably not going to get a referral. And and uh, Redfin is the number one most visited online uh, brokerage website. So I think for a lot of these trends. Play into to a to a, a, a company like Redfin as folks move more rural. So that's that's my trend. I think folks are going to move more away from cities, particularly white collar folks. All right, I talked for a long time, so Dylan, I'll let you. Now. I've got the peril of going last here because uh, you both managed to kind of touch on something that uh, I was going to talk about. I prepared two different thoughts for this one, and you guys kind of both um, to to put some more numbers to the remote work element of this. So prior to COVID in 2020. 5 million employees, so just under 4% of the entire U.S. workforce, worked from home for at least half the time. 
Um, I have to imagine that that number is going to go up. Um, and, you know, we, you mentioned the, the news that Twitter was going to be allowing people that were in a position to do so to basically work from home forever, uh, so long as it doesn't disrupt their ability to get things done. Um, I think in the same way that we saw these perks that, you know, Google laid out there for employees saying, you know, you don't need to leave. Like, we're going to give you like these wonderful meals. We're going to, you know, take care of transportation, all that kind of stuff. The ability to work from home is very quickly becoming a perk and a hiring advantage for a lot of companies. And so I think you're going to see that more and more. And the reality is for companies, I mean, that's just that's just a benefit. You know, it's less office space that they need to rent. Um, and, and it means that they're able to be far more versatile and far more dynamic. And that actually leads me to the second point that I was going to make uh, about things that I think are going to change. And, and Emily touched on this too, but I think that this really highlights the advantages that digital businesses have. Um, the disruption in the supply chain that we've seen with anything that involves a physical product, whether it's retail, groceries, what have you, um, are totally sidestepped by companies that are able to digitally deliver their products. And there was already a bit of a gap, uh, you can call it, I guess, a wealth gap between these types of companies in the valuations that they deserved. Um, and these digital companies very often enjoyed benefits of scale, benefits of higher margin. And now we are seeing that they have more resilient businesses when there's a pandemic going on. Um, and, and I think that it, it just highlights their strengths. So one thing that I, I, I've thought about, and I don't have a correct answer for this, but I think it's something that we can discuss for a little bit, is with this move more to remote work, how does this change dynamics around you know companies locating in Silicon Valley for access to talent or New York City or any of these places so they can have access uh, to these labor pools which drives up property values, that sort of thing, as, as companies locating in states that maybe don't have ideal uh, tax advantages for them. How do you think this shift to online work changes that whole calculus of where you locate your business, how, about, how you go about recruiting workers, comp structure? I mean, do you pay folks more instead of paying for the, this HQ? I mean, all those factors, any ideas on, on what the, how, how, that world, how that changes the world? I mean, I think it lets businesses be more creative. Uh, you know, you can you can kind of structure payments a lot of different ways, but if you're not paying for someone to physically be in uh, a headquarters or a company office or something like that, you can probably pay a little bit better in terms of salary. Um, I think that the the bargain that a lot of workers have probably been dealing with for the last couple of years is more flexible work from home, but possibly taking a little bit of a hit on pay because of that. And that might be something that changes um, because there are cost savings that those employers can then pass along to workers. I think you can think about it in the context of what we do here at The Motley Fool. So we're filming this podcast uh, or we're communicating with each other over Zoom, um, taping it, and then sending it out. And it's very similar to the product that we would create if we were in an office. Um, now, this makes it a little bit different because we have studio equipment and such. But I think for the majority of the workers at a company like The Motley Fool, they effectively do their job, whether they're doing it from our office or at home, preferences aside. So if we were in a situation where, you know, I think Twitter recently came out and said everybody can work remotely. If 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 Tom Gardner were to come to us and ever said, okay, if you want to come in, come in. We have floating desks, but <laughs> if you don't want to, stay at home. You can probably look at yourself, look at your coworkers, and ask yourself how many people would leave. I mean, we live in Maryland, Virginia, D.C., high tax states, to you know states that maybe have no income tax to do their work remotely. It, it raises a lot of questions about culture, about the legal consequences, and about how communication amongst your coworkers change. But 
throughout this all, COVID-19 has been, at a minimum, a really interesting scenario that we've played out for what has been a couple months now about what life like that could look like for workers across America. Right. I mean, there's this question of, as the, as everyone has had this experience of remote work and there was already rising demand for this, one of these barriers has been regulatory. Does it become a point where there's so much demand among the electorate that you know you have to open up some of those barriers? We don't know, but but that this is a factor that's changed because before many people wouldn't have had the opportunity to even try working from home. Yeah, and, and I think it also creates a lot of interesting uh, state boundary line questions as well. You know, we there are some excellent excellent explorations of what companies do with tax benefits they are given and what they decide to do after those tax benefits expire. And very often it's look around, see where they can get better tax benefits and move their offices. And if you're put in a position where you have a lot of uh, workers that can live anywhere, um, they're probably going to go to places that don't have income tax. And uh, that's going to create some major budgetary issues for states. And uh, so long as there's varying state tax policy, I I think that that's going to be something people are going to think about. Yeah, I think that's a great point, right? If you're going to forecast an exodus of people from Silicon Valley, which is one of the most high-income areas in the whole state of California, and California is a very high-tax state, you know that that changes some calculus in what the state's going to do too. A lot of potential things that can change, and that's what's so fun about all this is like there's there's one thing changes, and there's so many second and third order effects, and how does this impact things all over the place? And you know, we as investors, part of our job is to try to predict the future where things are going to go. And it's now more than ever, it's, it's, it's pretty complicated uh, to try to figure that out. So it's fun to discuss this a little bit. All right, let's move to our third topic, which is what is a change that was caused by COVID that we think will return to quote unquote normal, whatever new normal is uh, uh, after this. So we'll go back uh, uh, to Emily, we'll let you go first on this one. What you got? I think I might have a contrary opinion here. You'll notice that I was remarkably silent when you were talking about hand washing, Nick. <laughs> and that's because the the topic that I had planned was actually the caution. I expect the caution that many people are acting with today to largely go away once this pandemic, once they have a vaccine, once it's largely moved on. Um, similar to the way that the Spanish flu uh, caused a lot of panic about influenza. And nowadays, people still don't wash their hands after they go to the bathroom, even though they could catch the flu. Not to say coronavirus is like the flu, but it is to say that I think when people tend to up their caution because of whatever's happening in the media, whatever's happening in the world at a certain time, it makes them very scared. And the moment they stop hearing about it, the moment they're stop affected by it, you know, at least on a personal basis, they were very right back to what's normal. They revert right back to what's comfortable. So I think it's very likely that the caution we've seen people express, whether it's about washing their hands, whether it's about big events, whether it's about travel, I think people go back to living those those same ways, right? I think people will still go to events a year from now, even if there's that increased risk, even if they shouldn't. I think people will still want to do that. And I think people will still be, you know, be silly, let's say it that way, and not wash their hands in situations in which they should, because people go back to what's normal. They revert to to a median, and I think a median for a lot of people is is you know unsanitary and comfortable. Okay, so so along the lines of unsanitary, comfortable, returning back to normal. Sorry, sorry for anybody I might offend with this one. I think I think the the big. Um, I guess measuring point, I guess for me, of returning back to normal is will you get on a cruise ship? Because that that was obviously where one of these these things really started. They've been kind of a petri dish. How quickly do you think people return to cruise ships, Emily? 
I think people will return to cruise ships by next year. I really do. And I know that's a controversial opinion. I know a lot of people think that people are going to avoid cruises. They're going to avoid concerts, uh, Coachella-like events. But I think that once people believe that it's safe, they will move back really quickly. I mean, I anecdotally, I have friends who are booking tickets to Disney for like October this year under the expectation that, yeah, we'll be able to go back and, and gather in large groups of people. And cruise ships might take a little bit longer because they, again, they, they were such an issue during this pandemic. Uh, but I think that these cruises will have great media events where they're, you know, cleaning the ships, promising safety. And I think people will come back with great deals. Yeah. Emily, to your point, I mean, frequent industry-focused contributor Dan Klein is chomping at the bit to get back on a cruise ship. Yeah, and maybe my opinion's biased because I talk with Dan so often. (laughs) Yeah, but I I think you're right. I think there are a lot of people um, that will uh, do whatever kind of systemic changes need to happen. And uh, on a personal level, you know, those are the changes that are harder. Uh, You know, if you think back to, you know, the bubonic plague, uh, we were doing things as a society that wasn't particularly great. We had human waste in the streets, and that led to a lot of problems. Um, as a as a system, deciding that we shouldn't do that uh, was not something that people really had to make a individual decision on. That was a top down decision. And I think when those types of things are pushed on people, they lead to better overall behaviors. Uh, but if you're asking people to make a routine decision, it's really hard for those to stick. Yeah, it's going to be tough for me to get back on a on a cruise ship. Oh, I actually never been on one, but I, I really wanted to go on one before all the, all this craziness happened. I do think like people are going to do a lot more camping and things like that. I think there was already a little bit of a trendy hipster vibe to camping and doing that sort of thing. I, I think that trend probably gets some more juice added to it. But I, I don't know. I don't know about cruise ships. I don't know. <laughs> I can't get there. Um, the the thing that I kind of look at and am kind of interested in, and this is something that I think I really hope it changes. I don't think it's going to change. I think it's going to snap right back, uh, kind of on a similar note to Emily. Um, instead of physical wellness, this is going to be financial wellness. And I think that a lot of people, uh, either because they aren't currently working or because there's uncertainty, have really ramped down their consumer spend, which totally makes sense. Um, I think that as things start to open up and people are employed again, we're going to see that go up. And um, if there, again, if there's a silver lining to these types of situations, it's that it's a really good time to check in on what is truly necessary versus the things that we convince ourselves are necessary in our lives. And, you know, we, we went through the great recession, um, you know, just about a decade ago. And what we saw shortly after that was a reduction in the amount of consumer debt that was out there, a reduction in monthly spend. You can look at a bunch of different data sets and the number will differ slightly. But the reality is we saw a dip and then we saw it uptick again over the last seven or eight years. And, um, there are a lot of people living in debt. There are a lot of people that are living slightly beyond their means. And uh, the personal finance part of me is like, maybe this is a moment for people to check in on some of that stuff and rein in spending and and live a little bit more conservatively uh, so that they aren't getting themselves into trouble. That said, we've seen this story before and people haven't necessarily changed behaviors. Yeah, it's tough. People backslide. Uh, it's, 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 it's difficult. Um, I, I do think like there are things that are, have changed on the margin since 2008, don't you think? I think I think like our generation, like the millennial generation, has a little bit less credit card debt than the previous generation, but it gets, just got replaced by a boatload of student debt that uh, that we couldn't get away from. It's it's, it's tough. 
It is. And, you know, I mean, we've seen the spend change too. It's been less material. It's been much more experiential, um, you know, to, to your point about camping. And, and that kind of plays on the idea of people wanting to go to concerts and do things rather than own material possessions. But um, the, the problem is that debt is so darn easy. Um, you know, people are so willing to extend it to you. I know I just bought a house and I was shocked at how simple it was, uh, to go through the process. And, um, they're very happy to give you that money because they know that, you know, it locks you into payments. And, uh, you know, I, I hope that people can take this opportunity to look and be a little bit more critical of where their money's going. Um, I think that that could be a, a small good outcome that comes from all of this. Okay. So along the lines of people going back to their old habits and things snapping back to normal, I think alcohol and weed sales are going to go back to their normal uh, normal growth rates. So if you look at uh, you know in the, in the recent months, online alcohol sales were up 250 percent year over year. If you look at Nielsen's weekly retail sales of alcoholic beverages, uh, if you look at the weekly numbers, they're up anywhere from 25 to 55 percent over uh, the past recent weeks. You've got people drinking quarantinis on social media, so uh, you know it's it's taken taken things over. And a lot, uh, at that same time. Look at off-premise alcohol sales, bars, breweries, and restaurants down 60, 67 to 75 percent throughout the month of April. Uh, similarly, um, if you look at look at uh, pot sales in Oregon, Michigan, California, these states have seen rapid increases in sales. Suspiciously, during the week of April 13th to 19th, they really they really spiked uh, uh, during that period of time. So clearly, I, I think a lot of this is folks stocking up on their you know. Uh, mind-altering substance of choice uh, to, to partake in uh, while, they're, while they're stuck inside. I think a lot of this is, is, is folks stocking up. So these are sales that were accelerated more so than uh, you know, some, some step change increase. So I, and I do expect people to start going back to bars, restaurants, breweries as those opportunities are opened up. Um, I, I think if, if restaurants are allowed to be half full, they're probably going to be full to capacity. Um, as soon as as soon as they're they're allowed to open back up, so so I, I do think those those shifts in sales of alcohol and marijuana over the past six weeks or so aren't some you know material up change in how we consume. They're just accelerations of what we've done before, which isn't that surprising. Not I'm not way out on a limb here uh, <laughs> with this pick, but uh, I don't know, Emily. What are your thoughts on, on what's going on with, with pot during all this craziness? I know you follow that uh, pretty closely. Yeah, honestly, cannabis is a little bit harder to track the trends for because it has legal um, in for the very first year in so many states, right? So it's it's kind of a it's a harder thing to track trends over time. I totally agree with your analysis though that we for both alcohol and cannabis have seen stockpiling, um, especially in the cannabis sector. I mean, if you listen to a lot of these companies and their report earnings, they had a pretty decent quarter last quarter actually because it's you know suspiciously ends right there. At, you know, <laughs> there when everybody was stockpiling. I think for the next quarter, that's when we're going to start seeing the real impacts of this. But I want to push back on you, Nick. Not that I disagree with your premise because I, I do agree. But it got me thinking, uh, let's say that a lot of companies start permanently working from home, right? People who are working from home now stay working from home. Do you think that the new normal for alcohol sales in particular, again, pot's a little harder to talk about, but alcohol sales in general, do you think that those that new normal actually increases or do you think it stays the same as it was before? So are people going to be drinking at work because they can get away with it? <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe people, or maybe you just spend more time at home, so you're more likely to have a drink when you come home, as opposed to going out to a bar with your coworkers after work, that sort of thing. 
I tend to think from my personal experience, if I worked from home all the time and never came into an office, I'd probably do more happy hours because it gives you that socialization with coworkers and that casual conversation that you would get around the water cooler. Um, I don't think I would drink more at home. Um, I, I generally don't drink much at home um, um, already, but I, I think I would probably do more happy hours than I currently do. I don't know. What do you think, Dylan? Um, I mean, I think short term, you know, in the immediate aftermath where you have businesses opening and um, people with some degree of confidence that they can go outside and, and be healthy and, and safe, I think there is going to be a lot of local support for businesses, um, you know, and I, I think that people are going to want to do what they can to prop up, you know, the mom and pop shops that they love so much because those are those are really the people that have been probably hit the hardest by most of this stuff. Um, it's a lot harder for smaller companies and businesses to get access to capital. Um, you know, they, they don't have public shareholders that are willing to give them money. Uh, and so it, it's a little bit different. Um, beyond that surge, though, yeah, I, I think it's an interesting point. Um, the the element of this that I think is the most fascinating is you mentioned the delivery side of alcohol. And what the last couple months have highlighted is how important meal delivery and, and alcohol delivery, you can lump that in there too, can be for a lot of these businesses, but also how brutally uneconomical those businesses are and how how terrible they are financially, even while they are totally screwing over restaurants. Um, I've talked about this a lot on, on the tech show, but you know, Grubhub uh, as a business does a lot of things that are not particularly great for the restaurants that they work with. And they've they've been written up time and time again. They're, they're kind of one of those companies that keeps stepping in it uh, with some of the things that they do. Um, and restaurants are not a particularly high margin business to begin with. And so you have companies that aren't making a lot of money that are often mom and pop shops, and you have publicly traded companies that are specializing in meal delivery that are also not making money. And I wonder, you know, we've seen how important this thing is when we can't go outside, but also who makes money in this and do people keep using them after the need for them wears out? Yeah, I think that's a that's a perfect point. That was kind of the counterfactual I was gonna bring up. To, to these changes in alcohol sales, right? If people are consuming less at home and going more out to on-premise, then as a result, then this this uptick that we've seen in food delivery um, um, should should come back down. I think to, to, to another of your points, we've seen this this big upswing as people as people have become more and more aware of some of those practices and how it's difficult for the restaurants they really love and are trying to support to make money in some of these relationships uh, of restaurants going to other platforms, standing up their own kind of kind of ordering that sort of thing. Where I think the big winner uh, of this kind of uptick in food delivery might be somebody like Square or PayPal, the people that are actually going to process payments on on these these white label uh, uh, apps that that restaurants are coming up with themselves, more so uh, than the food delivery networks, which I, which I agree with you completely, Dylan, are just fundamentally uneconomic. You know, you look at the problems um, of of ride hailing. Well, they're even tougher. Uh, when you put it into the food delivery area, because you're baking in, waiting for the food, you're baking in, going to the restaurant, and then coming back uh, uh, to 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 the person you're delivering to, versus just going straight to your destination after you pick somebody up. And because of that, there's fewer deliveries, food deliveries you can make in an hour than even ride hail rides you could give. And then you layer on top that you're skimming margin from restaurants that are struggling to make it by already. I, I, I'm really skeptical of this business. I know this week there was the news came out that that Uber is trying to buy Grubhub. I. I still don't think fundamentally those businesses are going to be profitable, even with increased consolidation. But we'll see. If you get to monopoly, you know anybody can be profitable. 
Yeah, I mean, when you see consolidation, usually that means that they're going to realize some cost synergies by combining departments and reducing headcount. I think that the PR departments for both of those companies are probably going to stay as staffed as they currently are <laughs> because they deal with a lot of they deal with a lot of negative press and um, somewhat deservedly so. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's a tough nut to crack. I don't envy them for you know trying to figure that out because to pay someone. Uh, a living wage and, and have it make sense for them to run to a store and do a delivery on, on behalf of somebody else. It either is something that you have to pass along to the customers and it's, you know, five or eight dollars, which is which is a lot to add to a delivery order, uh, or it's profit that you just have to eat and decide that you're going to make it up on market share at some point down the road. And um, right now it's not really working either way. Right. You're either going to lose a whole bunch of money and have a big TAM or you're going to have a very small TAM and be profitable. Yeah. And those those seem to be kind of the, the, the two levers you can push on. Yeah. All right, so, so we've discussed a lot of things that, that are going to change, stay the same uh, during coronavirus. I know all of us are hopeful to get out of our homes and go back to you know some semblance of normal here pretty soon. What is the first thing that you all want to do, the first thing they, they'd say that's safe and you can go back out and return to your day-to-day lives? Dylan? Oh, boy. Uh, you know, that's... That's interesting, Nick. I mean, I I love. I feel guilty when I walk around Washington D.C. right now. Like I'll, I'll do it with a mask on, um, but I, I love walking around the city. It's it's one of my favorite things to do, um, especially now during the springtime when everything's blooming and you know the city's so green. Um, there's a park in D.C., Meridian Hill Park. It is one of my favorite spots in the city. Um, and I think I would love to go for like a couple hours and have a picnic out with friends. I think that is like top of my list for things to do. That's so wholesome. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that makes what I'm about to say very sad. Um, not to say that this would be the first thing that I do, but one thing I really hope I can do um, this year is I, I love my favorite thing to do with my friends. Every year we go to the Renaissance Fair, and it's the worst place to be during a pandemic because it's full of hot, sweaty people all breathing on each other and you know eating food basically off the floor. Uh, but it's a fun experience. I look forward to it every year. So I'm just hopeful that I can do that in 2020. Nick, what yeah. about you? What's the plan? Yeah, so I think the very first thing would be go get you know a great steak dinner or something like that. Go out to a great restaurant and get some good food. I think along the lines of kind of more special events, I've got a bunch of friends that are we're planning to get married this summer that have had to reschedule their weddings, that sort of thing. I know it's always fun whenever all your college friends come get, get together to celebrate somebody's wedding, and so I'm looking forward to that. It's always great for when that happens, but after a long period of time getting stuck inside, not being able to socialize with folks, that's something I'll really be looking forward to. We'll break it down on the dance floor, you know, do all that sort of thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you got to get ready for the electric slide. You got to practice. You know, the, those dance moves, they rust if you don't use them. Uh, yeah, the shout, <laughs> man. I, you know, been sitting here working at home. I, I got to get my, my knees ready to go uh, to do the shout. You can watch Wedding Crashers to amp yourself up. <laughs> there we go. There we go. All right, y'all. Thanks so much uh, for hopping on the show. Always great to have uh, the industry-focused team together in one place. Yeah, yeah I, I feel like I feel like JMO missed out. You know, like he put it out there whether you know we wanted to hop on for this one. I mean, we had a great time without him. <laughs> <laughs> As always, people on the program, my own companies discussed on the show, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for making us all sound so nice. For Dylan Lewis and Emily Flippin, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and Fool on.